Well, I heard recently about a Gallup poll that revealed the trust level that people have for certain professions. And I want to share a few of these with you. Check this out. At the top of the list were nurses. 83% of people polled said that they have a great deal of trust for their nurse. Next on the list, pharmacist. 66% of, of people polled said they have a great deal of trust for, for their pharmacist. Next was doctors. 65% of people said they have a great deal of trust for their doctors. Next was police at 63%. 63% said they have a great deal of trust for policemen. It's a little uh, drop after this. The next is uh, clergy. Pastors and priests, keep your comments to yourself. 50% of people said that they trust pastors, all right? Then we see a big drop after that. Journalists, 23%. Next is lawyers. Sorry, Brett. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't make this up here. 13%. Congressmen, 9%. And at the bottom of the list, car salesmen at 6%. Yeah. I don't know where your profession ranks here, and I certainly know that these are not true across the board. I know some very honest car salesmen, lawyers, and pastors, believe it or not. But something that, that stuck out to me as I read through this list is we don't really trust people very much, do we? We really don't. And, and I started to ask myself, why is that? And I'm sure there are a number of reasons, but I think a big part of the reason why is because we've just heard too many stories, right? About crooked politicians and journalists with agendas, people being ripped off by a salesman, and stories about lying congressmen and, and women. Too many Stories And the more and more you hear those stories, you can't help but ask, man, can I really trust anybody? Is there anybody I can trust? Well, believers, if you have grown up in the church or been here with us for more than just a little while, you know that one person you have been told you can always trust is Jesus. And as we have said throughout this series already, though, though many would say that they trust Jesus verbally, we would have to admit, if we're honest, that we don't always live like we trust in Him. I think if we were honest, many of us would have to admit, all of us would have to admit at times, we, we, we doubt. We question whether or not the Lord's really got this, whether or not he's in control. And the reason why is because we often want to take the reins, don't we? And take over and, and make the decisions. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Today we are going to answer the question from God's word, the question of can I really trust in Jesus? Hebrews 2, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18, we are continuing our study through Hebrews on the supremacy of Christ 
entitled, Jesus is Greater. And what we have seen so far in this book is this emphasis on the supremacy of Christ, the fact that he is better, he is greater, he is God's greatest revelation to us, he is greater than, than angels. We have seen the writer of Hebrews emphasize that, that Jesus is is supreme because of his power, because of his authority, because he is God the Son, because he is divine, the all-powerful, unchanging creator of all that is and sustainer of all things who has all authority. And in our text for today, we're going to see that Jesus is not only supreme in terms of his power and authority, but he is also supreme in a moral sense as well. He is supreme morally. He can be trusted because he is good. So what, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this text and point out from this text several reasons why Jesus can be Trusted, And my aim is very, very simple this morning. I hope and pray that as believers, you are encouraged this morning in your faith by this truth that Jesus is supremely trustworthy. He can and should be trusted more than anyone and anything else. He should be trusted by you and by me. And if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ at all for your salvation, I pray that you would see who Jesus is this morning from this text and that you would turn the reins of your life up and over to the Lord Jesus and be saved this morning. So let's look at this. Why? Can we trust Jesus? Here are a few reasons why. Number one, because Jesus has identified with us. He has identified with us. Look at verse 11 of Hebrews 2. We're told, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them Brothers. Now, before we explain this, let's first talk about who's the he here. Who is the he? Well, context helps us. The he who sanctifies is Jesus. Jesus is the one who sanctifies. He's the one who makes holy through his person and work at the cross. It is Jesus who sanctifies, and we are the ones who are sanctified, right? We as believers, God's people, the author of Hebrews is saying here that Jesus and God's people have one source. I like the way the NIV says it. He says, in the, in the NIV it says, they are of the same family. In the Holman Christian Standard Version of the Bible, it says they all have one source. Father, those of us trusting in Christ alone for salvation are of the same family as Jesus. We have the same Father. In the original language, it's translated they are of one or from one, which is the reason for the variations in translation because it's a, it's a little vague there, but context clears it up. What the author is saying here is that those who are in Christ are of the same, from the same family, with the same Father. That is why the author says Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus calls God's people his brothers because 
they're of the same family. Now, here's the question we need to have answered here. How are we in the same family with Jesus? How are we brothers with Jesus with the same father? Well, there are two ways. First, we are all sons and daughters of man, right? Now, I know Jesus was virgin born, but his roots, like ours, goes back to the first couple, the first family. Now, Jesus is from the seed of Eve, right? He is virgin born, born of a woman, but he is referred to as the second Adam, remember? He was fully man. He became a man for us. So we're fully human with roots that go back to the first couple. Same goes for Jesus. He became fully human with roots that go back to the first family. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, by the way. Christ becoming one of us, right? Being born of a woman, the seed of Eve. Look at verse 14 of Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Listen, Jesus became a man. He did not become an angel. Oftentimes we kind of think of him in that way. It's this sort of angelic being or or this mythic superhero from from krypton right like superman the reality is this since we have flesh and blood jesus became flesh and blood he partook of the same things he became just like us he became a man just like us and therefore we are of the same family with him he became a man he joined the human race and he had ties back to the first family just like we do the second reason we're of the same family as christ is because as believers we are children of gods we are sons and daughters of god jesus identified with us by becoming one of us in order that we might identify with him and become children of god c.s lewis said it in this way we have the quote up on the screen from mere christianity He said this, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's what Jesus has done for us. John says this in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And again, this happens through the person and work of God's Son, Jesus. Now, like we said a few weeks ago, we do not ever take Christ's unique position as the Son of God. Remember, He's the unique Son of God. He's the supreme Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God. We are sons and daughters through adoption, right? But we are sons and daughters nonetheless. But He is uniquely the Son of God. And through faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone, we join the family of God. We enter into this Trinitarian relationship. Listen, the Father becomes our Father. Christ becomes our Lord and our head, but also our brother. And the Spirit becomes our helper, our guide, our great comforter. So, because Christ has identified with us, we are able to identify with Him and become a member of the family of God. Now, we have to first identify with Him, right? To be made right with God, to be forgiven, to be made a child of God, we have to first identify with 
Christ. We have to turn from our sin. We have to turn to him and look to him and personally place our faith and trust in him and him alone and give our lives up and over to him. If we do not, we will not become a child of God's, but instead remain his enemies set against him in our sin. So we have to identify with Christ. And again, we're able to do that because Christ is first identified with us. And the author of Hebrews references a few Old Testament passages once again to support this point. First, he quotes Psalm 22. Look at verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 2. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So he quotes a psalm once again. This is a Davidic psalm, a messianic psalm. Psalm 22 is a very, very familiar psalm of David. And at the beginning of that psalm, we have the famous words uttered by Jesus at Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we have a description given in that psalm of hands being pierced and garments being divided and lots being cast for those garments. When we read that passage in the Old Testament with New Testament eyes, it's meant to take us to Calvary. That's where our thoughts are to go, to Jesus and his accomplished work. In Hebrews 2.12, the author of Hebrews quotes a verse after those few verses. He quotes Psalm 22.22, I believe, to take us to the events after Christ's death and resurrection, during his post-resurrection ministry. After Jesus was pierced and crucified, after he uttered those famous words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died after his death. He rose again three days later after his resurrection. Christ spent a great deal of time teaching his disciples about this great work that he had accomplished our salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. Remember, we learned earlier in Hebrews that, that this gospel message was declared first by the Lord, right? He declared it first. He not only accomplished it, he declared it. He did not simply identify with us by becoming one of us, though that's a big part of it, not just by dying in our place, though that's an essential part of it, but he also came, Christ came, to reveal who God is, and the truth about his gospel. He came not just to accomplish this great work, but to share about this great work with us, to explain it to us, to share it with us so that we would trust in this work and praise God alongside the Lord Jesus and also would, would make this work that he accomplished known to others. The author of Hebrews tells us, Jesus came to tell of God's name, to spread his gospel to his brothers in the midst of the congregation. You know what that word is? Ekklesia. It's, where, it's a Greek word for church. To share it in the midst of the church, in the midst of God's people, and, and to sing his praises so that his people would associate with him and trust in him and share in this victory and follow his Example, that's why Christ came. Look at verse 13. The author of Hebrews references here Isaiah chapter 8, saying, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Christ came to identify with us so that we could identify with him through trusting in him and his gospel so that we could become his disciples so that he might become our Lord, follow me, and our brother so that we would become a child of God. Jesus identified with us to bring us to God, to make us right with him. And, and Christ spoke of his great trust in God, and he showed great trust in God at Calvary, right? Started in Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross, and he laid his life down. And he came to escort the children of God, the children God gave to him, to trust in God as well. Folks, Jesus is trustworthy. He can be trusted. Because he has become one of us to identify with us so that he could bring us to God. He came to share that truth about God to us, worship God with us, and trust in him for us so that we might do the same. I heard a story recently about a well-known camp in Missouri, Canacut Camp. It's where a lot of us go in central Arkansas. It's kind of like Pine Cove. In the main office of the camp, there is this famous picture and it is a, a picture of the founder of this camp. And in this picture, this guy, the founder of this camp, well-known camp, is down in a creek bed. I think he's laying down in the picture in this, in this muddy creek bed. And all of these kids are just laying around him, kind of in a circle. And they're looking for crawdads. And the, and the staff at this camp, they show this picture each and every summer to the counselors and explain that the reason this guy was able to have the impact that he, that he had in ministry is because he was willing to identify with the people he was trying to minister to. He didn't just stand back, stay removed from them at a distance and say, do this and don't do that. No, he got down on their level. He rolled up his sleeves. He got his hands dirty. He identified with them. And as a result, he was able to minister to them. That's what Jesus has done for us. He didn't stand back. He didn't stay removed from us. He emptied himself. He became one of us. He got down in the creek bed with us, right? He condescended down to us so that he could identify with us. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. He taught in parables. He told simple, relatable stories to communicate the deep truths about God, his gospel, and his kingdom. He came down to our level. He identified with us so that we could, in turn, identify with him and be brought to God. For that reason, Christ should be trusted by us. So the question you need to ask yourself today is, do you? Do you trust in him? Because Christ has come to identify with us, have you identified with him? Are you trusting in him alone for your salvation? Believers, believers, we are told that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He is not ashamed to identify with us. Are you ashamed to identify with him? That's a good question for us today, isn't it? Listen, if he is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters, you should not be ashamed to be identified with him and call him Lord. It's very, very important. So why can we, why should we 
trust in Jesus because he's not ashamed to call us brothers and to identify with us. Here's the second reason why our, our trust in Jesus is to be greater than any and everything else. Number two, because Jesus has defeated death for us. Look at verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In the previous point, we talked about the fact that Jesus has come to identify with us, and here in this passage, we learn the reason why. Why did Jesus identify with us? We're told he did it to live and die for us. In the questions, the catechism questions I go through with our girls every morning during morning Bible study, one of the questions I ask them over and over again is, why did Jesus become a man? And they know the answer. They respond with, he became a man to obey and suffer. That's exactly right. That's why Jesus came. He came to live for us. He came to obey for us. He came to fulfill all righteousness for us, and he came to suffer and die in our place. Now, now, why did he die for us? Well, in this passage, we're given two reasons why. One, he came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And two, he came to deliver us from our fear of the certainty of death. So let's take a moment to look at these a bit closer. First, we're told Jesus came to identify with us, live for us, die for us, to destroy the works of the enemy, the devil, to destroy the one who has the power of death. Now, notice here we're told Satan has the power of death. And many, many scratch their, their heads at that and say, well, I thought God's the author of life, and our life is in his hands. He's the great sovereign over the created world. Well, he is. That's not what the author is talking about here. Let me explain what he's saying. Listen, when Satan tempted man and man sinned in the very beginning, death entered the world as a result of sin. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. We were separated from God. And not only did man die in a, a physical sense, which, by the way, was not the way God created things initially, right? More importantly than that, there was this spiritual death, this separation that occurred at the fall. Man died spiritually at the fall. Man's perfect relationship with God was shattered. And there is nothing that man could do by his own power to change that. No matter how hard he tried, he could not bring himself back into a right relationship with God. He could not restore paradise by his or her own efforts. Man or woman, they can't. Man was helpless and hopeless after that, and that was the great power that Satan had over us for years to come. His great power rested in the fact that God is a just God and in the fact that he has to punish sin, therefore he has to punish us because we're sinners and there's nothing we could do, you could do, I can do about that to change that on our own. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are dead spiritually, right? There's nothing we can do to change that. As a result of our sin, he also says God's wrath is set against us. And that was the great victory of Satan in Genesis 3. That was the great power that he had over us. We were dead spiritually because of our sin, helpless and hopeless on our own, and God's wrath was set against us. But what Satan failed to see is that God had an answer from the start, didn't he? 
And that answer was Jesus. Genesis 3.15, we're told, the seed of the woman, by God, the seed of the woman is going to come and is going to crush the serpent's head. Who's the seed of the woman? It's Jesus. There on the heels of the fall, God gives us the hope of Christ. Right there. The answer is, is Jesus. Though man fell and was in a helpless and hopeless state, God's plan from the beginning was to send his son to live the perfect life we could never live for us in our place and offer up his life as a substitute for ours and, and conquer death through his death so that we might not have to die but, but have life through faith alone in him alone and not have to experience God's wrath in the life to come but instead have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's why we sing. Death has no sting, right? For those of us in Jesus, that's what Paul meant when he said those words, 1 Corinthians 15, oh death. Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ removed the sting of death for us. And here's how he did it. By giving his life up, he allowed death to plunge its stinger into him at the cross, and it was left there. Christ bore the whole sting of death for us so that death for us who are in him has no sting. That's the gospel. He conquered death with death so that we might live. That's the gospel. Plain and simple. Christ became one of us. He took on flesh and blood so that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's the gospel. So Christ died to destroy the works of the devil. He also died to break the power of death that it has over us and to deliver us from the fear of the certainty of death. Look at verse 15 again. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We're told there are two things that are certain in this life. Death and what? Taxes. We're not going to talk about taxes, but we'll talk about death this morning. It applies here. Death is certain, right? And many in our world today, as they've as we've seen throughout history, they're fearful of death. We do our best to avoid it. We don't like to talk about it. We make light of it. And we certainly do not have, like to have to stand face to face with the reality that we are all going to die someday, and that someday may be today. But here's the truth of the matter. We can't avoid it nor stop it when it comes. When your time comes, it comes. It comes to everyone, but get this, Christ came to deliver us from the fear of death that enslaves us in this life. He came to give us hope beyond the grave, to give us life even though we die. And he, he made this possible through his life, death, and resurrection. He lived the perfect life we could never live, laid that perfect life down, died the death that we deserve to die for our sin and was raised for us so that we who place our faith and trust in him alone could be forgiven of sin and made righteous by our faith alone in Christ alone so that we could have eternal life in his presence with his people forever. Well, the author goes on to tell us more. You want to hear more? About what Christ did? It just gets better, right? Tells us more about what Christ did. How did he defeat death for us? Skip down to verse 17. 
Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus identified with us in order to become our priest. This is going to be a major emphasis of the writer of Hebrews, and we're going to talk more about about, uh, uh, how Christ fulfilled that role in the upcoming weeks. But some of you, you, you hear that, and you're like, I don't need a priest. Why do you have to become my priest? Surely I don't need a priest today. Well, we're going to talk about why you do, okay, in the coming weeks. So stick with us. Some of you are asking the question, well, what's a priest? Like a Catholic priest? No. It's where the knowledge of the Old Testament comes in handy. And again, we're going to flesh this out in the weeks to come. I'll just say this. In the Old Testament, God's people had priests who represented them before God. And what he would do is the the great high priest would, would offer up sacrifices before God on uh, behalf of the people to keep things good and right, keep things smooth between God and his people. All right, that's all I'll go into there. We'll, we'll talk about it more as we go on. But we learn here, we're going to learn later in this study that Jesus is our great and perfect high priest. He has entered into the Father's presence on our behalf. And he had to be a man to do that realize that he had to be made like us in every way so that he could go to God on our behalf he was able to perfectly represent us because he became a man in every respect and he was greater than any other priest because he's a sinless man he's the ultimate man he's the God man and the author of Hebrews said he offered up the perfect sacrifice for us to make propitiation for our sins. Now, what does that word propitiation mean? Well, I want to explain it. It's a word that's used over and over again in the New Testament. It's a very, very important word. And what it means is this, that the sacrifice that Christ offered up appeased God's wrath. It, it satisfied his wrath that was set against us because of our sin and adequately covered our sin. And what was that sacrifice that Jesus offered up for us believers it's in his life right it was himself he laid his own life down the perfect life down for us and our sin was transferred to him and he endured God's wrath for our sin so that we could in turn receive his righteousness God crushed Christ for us so that he might not have to crush us he was crushed by God for us as we as we sing and God transferred our sin to him so that he could give us Christ righteousness what a gift the greatest gift in all of existence right there it's an incredible unimaginable work that God has done for us he's done it we can trust in Christ because of it because he has given his life for us he has identified with us by becoming one of us he has laid his life down for us to save us from sin and death third reason why we can and should trust Jesus is because he helps us it's the third point Jesus helps us look at verse 16 
He says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Remember, the author is writing to a group of Jews, the offspring of Abraham, and they had too high a view of angels. We've talked about that. It's understandable why they had a high view of angels, because angels had been God's, God's special messengers to their people throughout their people's history. He had sent angels to communicate the wonderful truths about God and his gospel and his, his kingdom, but they had too high a view of angels at this time and too low a view of Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to them to tell them that Jesus is greater than angels. And he also talks about how significant we are, people, believers, because he says here, Jesus did not become an angel. Why? Because he did not come to help and redeem angels. There were angels that fell, right? But Jesus did not become an angel. He became a man to help and redeem us. He became a man to help us, to redeem us. And if that were all that Christ did for us, that would be more than enough for an eternity of praise, right? But we learn in our text of Scripture that Christ has done much more than that, which gives us all the more reason to love and trust Him and worship Him. Look at verse 18 of Hebrews 2. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Here's another reason. Christ took on flesh and joined the human race. It was so that he might be tempted as we are tempted and that he might suffer as we suffer. Jesus didn't just come to earth and go immediately to the cross and die. He, he lived for us. He went through, he experienced all the hurts and the pains and the testings that are a part of this life. He suffered bodily hunger. He suffered the grief of the death of a loved one. Commentators believe, I believe it as well, that, that Joseph Joseph died at a, at when Jesus was young because we have no mention of Joseph during his earthly ministry, so he lost his father early on. He also lost Lazarus and, and others, so he suffered the grief of, of the death of loved ones. He suffered the betrayal of a friend. He suffered the taunts of his enemies. He suffered the temptations of Satan himself. And because he suffered all of these things, get this, believers, he is able to understand and empathize with our sufferings and our temptations. Are you going through difficult times? Jesus understands. He was there right where you are, and is able to help you. He has been where you have been. He went through the same kinds of experiences. He knows how to help. You do not have a cosmic God who is indifferent to your daily problems. You have a God who is intimately acquainted with your issues. You have a God who has been there where you have been. He has hurt where you hurt. He has cried, right, where you cry. He has been tempted where you were tempted, and he did not give in. He was tempted like we are, but was without sin to save us. But he has experienced these things that we experience. And because of that, he is able to help. And he is willing to help you. For that reason, you can trust him. The question I want to leave you with this morning, once again, is this. Do you? Do you trust him? Maybe you're here this morning, and if you're being honest, you're not trusting in Christ at all. Though he has 
come to us, though he has taken on flesh, become one of us to identify with us, though he, he died for us to save us and he, and he came to help us, you have not identified with him. You are not trusting in him alone for your salvation. Maybe you're here, you're going at life on your own, trying to carve out your own way. Hear me when I say this. If this is you, that is the way of death. God's words. That's why Jesus came. He came to identify with us so that we could identify with him and be saved. If you're here this morning, you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, I pray today be the day. Give the reins of your life up and over to the Lord Jesus. You bow your knee to him. You make him your Lord so that you can be saved, so that you can have this hope that we've been singing about, this hope that we've been talking about in an otherwise hopeless existence. Trust in Christ so that you can live even though you die in his presence with his people forever. If you've never done that, today's the day. Today's the day. Do it. I urge you. Give your life to Jesus today and be saved. Let's pray.